How are we doing? Okay. So, here we are, back in our series, Rebuilding. Good to be uh, continuing on. We're going to finish the book of Ezra today, which is exciting. Um, and it's been a good series, I think, uh, delving into this topic of, of rebuilding uh, and, and the rubble, uh, the faith in the rubble. And I think one of the questions which has surfaced uh, for us as we've been learning more about the lives and, and about the actions of these Jewish people who lived through the exile and who lived beyond the exile um, is what do we do when our plans, uh, even when our plans which seem like God's plans, what do we do when they don't land where we thought they would? What do we do with that? How do we make sense of these moments where God births hope in our hearts um, and presents us with a vision for something and um, calls us into it even? And then it sort of goes strangely pear-shaped. What do we do with that feeling? And when we're left wondering, God, what what was that about? Um, So in a word, I guess we're really just wrestling with a pretty... Knotty topic, really, a, a topic around how to hold on to faith in the face of disappointment. And um, as we've kind of established over the last couple of weeks, um, these books, Ezra and Nehemiah, which is really just one book, um, are an exquisitely sophisticated literature, really, really carefully put together, um, just brilliant. Um, and carefully designed and crafted in such a way that they almost act like a mirror that reflect back to us all of our hopes and all of our desires and all of our big dreams. Um, And also kind of give us a mirror of our own futility in terms of how we can establish those dreams in our own strength Um, or maybe how, you know, we can try to make the kingdom of God here on earth. So I have to make a confession that uh, up until I started looking into these books, I, I had read them, um, but I probably had read them in the way you read something when you're thinking about breakfast, you know. You, you know, your eye bounces across the words, and you know, I'm reading my Bible, but um, my mind is, is somewhere else. I, I, I've certainly read them, but I, um, I'd never really read deeply into it. And so when Pete suggested that we do a, a series on, on Ezra and Nehemiah, I thought, well, my initial thought was, yes, <laughs> you know, yes, this is, this is God's word, this is God breathed. This is um, the scripture. Um, useful for, uh, what does it say in Second Timothy? Useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Um, make us wise unto salvation. So yes, we should definitely teach this book. But then underneath that, yes, there was a thought of uh, a, a wondering of how on earth will this preach? How will this preach? <laughs> and only you can answer that question, not me. Um, but I think uh, what I've found as I've been reading these books and sort of letting them read me is that uh, they are good at reading me. They're good at reading us, I think. Um, they, it's been a helpful process. So hopefully as you've been reading it, I don't know what it's been like for you. You might still be in the kind of like, what on earth is this um, camp? Or you might be kind of experiencing a little bit of this Bible reading me moment. I think they're hard books to read um, because it's so sophisticated. They're hard because they don't deal with black and white scenarios. And a lot of the time, um, we try to make the Bible into a kind of black and white text, but it really isn't. Um, We try to craft the characters into obvious heroes and villains. But then it turns out as we stay with these people, we realize that um, 
our heroes are kind of flawed and, and there's some ambiguities which we're not quite sure how to resolve and our villains are also victims at the same time. So there's this weird, like, uh, I don't quite know where to put these people. It's all very untidy. It's all very inconvenient. And I think, hey, isn't that what life is like? <laughs> you know, our heroes do turn out to be relatively flawed and our, our villains do often turn out to be victims as well. So there's a lot of truth to life in these books. But anyway, let me just recap where we are at in terms of yeah, getting our bearings, this helpful timeline that Pete's given us. So, um, so far we have covered Ezra 1 to 6, which is the first period, historical period, which is kind of like uh, the period, if we're in tracking with contemporary time, sort of the 1910s to 1930s. This remarkable story of a Persian king called Cyrus who is moved by the Spirit of God um, to send the captive Israelites, the Jewish exiles, back to their homeland. But he doesn't just send them home. He, he endows them with gold. He, he really gives them royal favor. He, he says, I want to I make the way smooth for you. I wanna, I'm going to bless you as you go and look after you and make sure that nobody gets in your way. Um, so it's a remarkable thing. And in these first six chapters, we're introduced to a couple of exceptional leaders, Zerubbabel among them, and Joshua, who lead the, this first wave of returnees out of Babylon and back to the land. And when they get there, these, these leaders um, act with, I think, really good wisdom in that they begin to reestablish the, the rhythms and the patterns of worship and helping these dislocated people to find themselves back into the story of who they are, back into the story of God's redemptive work in history. Um, and then we meet these Samaritans, or these, the people of the land, as they're called in the text, and they approach Zerubbabel, and they offer him help. They say, we want to help you. We want, to, we want a piece of this. We want to help you in the reconstruction of the temple. We like what you're doing. And, and as readers, we're not really sure what their motives are. Um, the narrator frames it for us. It says that they are the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. So we are immediately trained to see them as suspicious, as sinister. Um, but the writings, like I talked about last week, the writings in Zechariah and Haggai trouble this view a little bit. They sort of show that things aren't maybe quite so black and white. So face to do, face, Zerubbabel's faced with this decision. What do I do with these people, these, these, these foreigners um, who want to collaborate with us? Um, they say they want to worship Yahweh, but they've also got all this other stuff going on, these other religions. It's all mixed together. And so Zerubbabel has to think about it, and he decides to reject their offer. And it's probably, like I say, in an effort to preserve the integrity of this very fragile little plant that's been, that's out of a miracle has been taken out. He says, no, we need to protect this thing. He recognizes the risk in making this thing too porous. He needs to kind of protect this fragile plant. Um, and maybe he doesn't even feel like he has permission to let them do it. As Cyrus has given him permission, not these people permission. So, so, there's a, so out of whatever reason, he decides, no, um, you will have no part with us. And so he, he sharpens the boundaries. And um, the two groups become enemies. They become, whether they were enemies beforehand, they certainly become deeper antagonistic kind of partners in the story. And so the returnees and their work rebuilding the temple start suffering setbacks, more and more setbacks, more and more difficulties. Um, and progress on their efforts to rebuild the temple stalls. And then the prophets Haggai and Zechariah appear in this text and they start reminding the people, hey, you know, God's called us to do this. This is God's work. Um, 
And so we should not be discouraged or slackened, you know, in our work. God's behind us. God's with us. And, um, and Haggai starts, you know, critiquing the people saying, you're, you're attending to your own stuff. You're not, you're not prioritizing God. Um, and Zechariah reminds them, Zerubbabel, he's like the signet ring. He's like God's signet ring, you know. Everything he does is, is inspired by God. And so the people get spurred on by these prophets, and they begin to return to the work of rebuilding, and the temple is completed. Meanwhile, uh, back in Babylon, we have the events of Esther, which Pete covered. Um, so go and listen to Pete's sermon if you haven't already. Um, it's really good, and it, it, he, Pete talks about the way that, um, well, he, he, he shows that the book of Ezra gives us a framework for understanding what an appropriate response to politics and faith should look like. And I, I guess that's a pretty um, topical thing for us in an election season. So then we've got Esther, and then we flick forward. So we've gone from the 1910s all the way up to the 19, 1990s. We've jumped from chapter 6 to chapter 7. We've jumped 60 years in the narrative. Um, but as we can see, um, as we will see, that, that there's sort of a cycle, and, and we're going to see that the cycle is repeated again in these chapters. So once again, we have the story of God stirring up this leader, this Persian leader, um, in this case a leader called Artaxerxes, who God once again inspires, and, um, and God calls forth another brilliant um, leader from amongst the people, this time a man called Ezra who was a religious teacher and an expert in Torah. So he's got these impeccable credentials. The way he's introduced is like um, so awesome in the text in chapter 7. Um, this is a little bit nerdy, but um, he's, he's kind of this impeccable person. He, he's presented as the new Moses. And so there's this list of names, which again we, we would just flick over, but the names are deliberately there. There's seven priests listed, and those are the seven priests who were in charge after the destruction of the temple, and then there's Azariah in the middle, the first priest in Solomon's temple, and then there are another seven priests listed, those seven priests who administered before the destruction of the temple, and the final one is Aaron. So, so the narrator is saying Ezra is the kind of fulfillment back to Moses, all the way back to, to Aaron. Um, he, he, he's this, you know, all of God's timing is coming to fruition in the in the commissioning of Ezra. He's going to be like Aaron. He's going to be like Moses. So a uh, big kind of expectation around what God's about to do in Israel. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, like I say, that the theme of the second exodus is just dripping off the pages in chapters 7 and 8. Um, he's just like Zerubbabel was 60 years earlier. Ezra is loaded up with gold, loaded up with treasures from, from the, uh, the Persian sorry, um, Empire. And um, just like Zerubbabel, Artaxerxes makes it clear that no one is to hinder Ezra and his work. And he basically smooths out the track for Ezra in front of him and makes sure that um, anybody who gets in his way will, will get in trouble. Um, so once again, we get this list of names, um, this sort of long list of names, just like we did in the beginning of Ezra. And it functions like, a, like an honor roll, like these are the who's who of who came along in the second wave of returnees. Ezra assembles all the people on the outskirts of Babylon. He brings them all together. Um, he surveys who's, who's responded to the call, and then he notices that there are priests. There are no priests, sorry. All of the priests are missing. And so he goes back, and he specifically begins to um, draw out these different priests from priestly families. 
until he has 12 leaders. So again, for, for a 12 being um, a connection of a, you know, the, the reformed Israel, the 12 tribes, the 12 priests. So once all the right people are in place, Ezra calls them to pray and fast. And he asks God, he, you know, he begins praying that God would make a straight way in the wilderness, which again is um, ringing Isaiah's prophecies in our ears, Exodus in our ears. Um, this is how Robert Alter translates it. This is Ezra speaking. And I proclaimed a fast there by the Ahava River to afflict ourselves before our God, to seek from him a straight way for us and for our little ones and for all our possessions. For I was ashamed to ask of the king an armed force and horsemen to aid us against our enemies on the way. For we had said to the king, saying, The hand of our God is benevolent upon all who seek him, and his power and his wrath are upon all who forsake him. And we fasted and sought out our God for this, and he granted our plea. So this is a kind of amazing decision from Ezra. He, he could have asked for support from Artaxerxes. He could have asked for armies or uh, soldiers to guard them. But uh, he decides, no, we're going to fast and we're going to trust that God's going to look after us. Um, even though you can see he's kind of nervous. So he's got these small group of people, no protection, absolutely loaded with treasure, marching out into the desert. Um, kind of a recipe for all kinds of trouble. Um, they've got a journey from Persia all the way to Israel through wilderness, through un sort of, they don't have maps, obviously. They don't have compasses. They don't have GPS. They, um, they got to find their way um, through the wilderness, this group of people loaded with treasure, um, with the reality that the, the wilderness is full of marauders and, you know, people probably know that they've just, just left with all this money. Um, not only could they lose their way, they could be, you know, an easy target. So, um, but this is his decision. So skipping ahead to verse 31, uh, this is what it says. And we journeyed on from the Ahava River in the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us, and he saved us from the clutch of the enemy and the ambusher on the way. And we came to Jerusalem. Ah, it would be so good if they'd given us a few more details about their journey, eh? But um, that's it. You know, we went and we came. Um, so Ezra arrives in Jerusalem, um, unaccompanied by any military support. Kind of a miracle of God, really, uh, that he gets there. And when he arrives, he begins his ministry straight away, which is summed up really nicely in the last verse of chapter 8. This is of Ezra's ministry. And they bolstered the people and the house of God. So if Zerubbabel was all about uh, rebuilding the rhythms and rebuilding the container, if you like, of worship for Israel, um, the temple then Ezra is all about rebuilding the content um, of worship, that which goes in the container. Um, and the content was um, to, to build, to rebuild the people who are faithful to the covenant of God. And even back in chapter 7, 15, we have a little job description for Ezra that the Persian king gives him. He says, your job is to inspect Judah and Jerusalem by the law of your God, that it's in your hand. So Ezra's mission from, the, from Artaxerxes is to you know, take all this law, take your religious traditions, and go to Jerusalem and check it out. See, see how they're going. See if they're actually living this way. And if not, train them towards it. So with this in mind, we turn to chapter 9. And everything's been going so well. You know? Everything's been going fantastically, miraculously, beautifully. 
And we get to chapter 9, we once again find this fly in the ointment. We find this glitch in the story. Something's gone wrong in the triumphant narrative that we've been tracking with so far. Ezra gets word from some of the nobles and some of the sort of heads of the families who are living in the land that uh, the returnees, um, some of the returnees, um, including some of the priests and Levites and their sons, have intermarried with women from the land. These um, these Samaritan, proto-Samaritan people that I was talking about last week. So, um, and the way it's framed is kind of interesting, given given that it's the leaders of the land dobbing in some other leaders of the land about this stuff. Interesting. This is how it reads. Uh, sorry, there we go. And when when all of these things were finished, that's when he's arrived, the nobles approached me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not kept apart from the people of the lands whose abominations are like the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Ammonite, the Moabite, the Egyptian, and the Ammonites. For from their daughters they have taken wives for themselves and for their sons, and the holy seed is mingled with the peoples of the land, and the hand of the nobles and the officers was first in this betrayal. So, not good. Um, a few interesting things to note, though. So... Um, the way the issue is framed is kind of interesting. The, the issue of foreign marriages that's brought to Ezra's attention is framed in an interesting way. The nobles connect the people of the land, so these Samaritans through the, remember last week, the Assyrians had brought in from who knows where. They're not um, Ammonites, Canaanites, Jebusites. They're from somewhere else. But they connect these people to all the historical nations, all of the various ites um, of the Old Testament, that the first Exodus generation had to contend with. Um, so they say that they're like the Canaanite, the Hittite, etc. But these two things are not the same. These two things are not the same. The, the, these people are not those people. And yet they're being superimposed over each other in the, in the diagnosis, if you like. They're saying they're the same when they're not. Secondly, um, it seems like the concern of the nobles... Um, mainly is to bring this news to Ezra around this issue that they're trying to protect what they call the holy seed, meaning um, the genealogical bloodline of the Jewish people. But the commandments of the Old Testament, the Torah, don't talk about um, bloodline. They don't talk about seed in genealogical terms. Um, the commandments of the Torah prohibit intermarrying with foreign uh, nations and it's always concerned with worship it's always concerned with maintaining proper worship not maintaining racial purity so there's been a little switch which has happened in this conversation from a holy people to a holy seed because um, we have other parts of the bible don't we? we've got books like ruth which um, give us a pretty clear example of of an, a Moabite who marries in to, to Israel, who actually goes on to produce, uh, Jesse who produces King David. We also have Rahab, the Canaanite, who marries in. And she produces, um, I think, Obed? Anyway, um, she's in there. When you read, is it Obed? Yeah, okay, <laughs> good. Someone knows the Bible. Um, and, and he's in Jesus' family line. So both of these women are in, in Jesus' family line, Canaanite and a Moabite. So clearly we, we, we have in the Old Testament voices that are saying, uh, this is not 
that the, the, the bloodline is not the issue. It's about worship. Um, so yeah, it's always concerned with this threat that's posed to worship. Um, God is interested in creating holy people, if you like, uh, a holy people with, with porous boundaries so people can enter and come in. Uh, outsiders can be incorporated in rather than a holy seed with hard boundaries that you have to be a descendant, otherwise you, there's no place for you here. So a couple of other things to consider. Um, so Ezra's mandate from the, from the king, um, as well as Zerubbabel's, was to de- encourage the development of this distinctive Jewish religious community. And that required lots of careful work on the part of these returnees. They had to figure out how to how to cultivate this identity in the face of these well-established cultures around them. Um, Larger people groups, wealthier people groups, people who had a deep stake in the land, um, as opposed to this, you know, upstart little group who are trying to find their way. So during the exile, all of the land had been redistributed, so uh, it seems like uh, there were a lot of... um, you know, foreign landlords, basically, who had control over large parts of the land. Um, so this required lots of careful work. And, and in light of that, it's important just to note that marriage in this context is a, a little different to how we think of marriage. So in the ancient world, and probably in lots of parts of the world still today, marriages were primarily about alliances. They are about kind of connecting family alliances. So they were driven by this desire to create strong networks. Um, not to say there wasn't romance, but romance wasn't sort of front and center. It was about marriages were arranged and that sort of thing. So it's just important to kind of have that in the back of our mind when we're reading this stuff. Sometimes we can like bring, you know, white dresses and bouquets into the Bible, but no, no, that's in there. You know, marriage is slightly different there. Um, but we can sort of assume, you know, in light of the the context that these little these little upstart um, group are trying to establish amongst this rich um, powerful groups around them that marriage was sort of a good idea to get in on on some of the political gains you know there are lots of good reasons to, to marry in um, so yeah so I think the majority of these marriages would have been um, that were reported to Ezra would have been Jewish men who are attempting to um, enmesh themselves in the power structures and in the people groups around them. But whatever the case, that may not be the truth. That's just one way of seeing it. Um, whatever the case, Ezra is, is mortified when he finds out. He's totally mortified at this news. Um, he literally is tearing out his hair. He's tearing out the hair of his beard. He's ripping his clothes. He's, um, he's, he's weeping and falling on the ground. So it's really significant news about these wayward leaders. So he recognizes that there's a, seri- a serious problem here in what's going on. And his next response is to just offer this, this big lament, really, and this beautiful prayer where he basically takes the whole guilt of everybody into himself. You know, he, he assumes responsibility on behalf of all the leaders who have done this stuff. And then he, he afterwards, after this, this prayer, which you can read, um, he goes and consults with the leaders of the people, and one of them, called Shekaniah, um, offers this diagnosis. This is what he says. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. And then Shekinah offers um, this as the solution. He says, so now let us make a covenant 
with our God to send away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord, Ezra, and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Take action, for it is your duty, and we are with you. Be strong. Do it. Oh, kind of heavy, isn't it? <laughs> um, so Ezra, after praying, after fasting, um, he calls this solemn assembly. He gets all of the leaders of the land together. Everybody who's a head of a family, he brings them all back together. And um, he also threatens to take their property if they don't come, by the way. There's a little detail in there uh, and expel them. So it's like, I want you to come, and if you don't, I'm going to kick you out. Um, so they all assemble. Um, and at this meeting, um, which happens to be in the pouring rain, as it says, everyone assembles, and the text says they were all trembling, they were shaking because of the matter. And then it also says because of the rains. So they were trembling because of the matter, and because of the rains. Um, it's kind of a funny picture in a way. Um, this ambiguous picture again of a people who are shaking and it's like, are they shaking because they feel cut to the heart over what's been done? Um, or is it because they're cold <laughs> and wet? Um, maybe it's both. I'd say it's probably both. But anyway, um, Ezra stands and he delivers this verdict to the family heads. And this is what he says. He says... Um, Oh, yeah, there we go. Um, he says, thus, uh, no, you have betrayed and brought back foreign wives to add to the guilt of Israel and now confess to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will and keep yourself apart from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives to which the people say, yep, thus according to your words we must do. But the people are many and it's rainy and um, there's no strength to stand outside and I can't get this done in one day. This is not the task for one day, um, or even for years, um, for we've greatly trespassed in this matter. So let our nobles stand forth for all the assembly and for all who are in our towns and who have brought back foreign wives. Let them come at set times, and with them the elders of each town and its judges, until the smoldering wrath of our God over this matter is turned back. In other words, yes, we agree. This is a problem, but can we sort of find a way to solve this not standing in the rain? Um, <laughs> we're going to need a committee, I think. Uh, this might take a while. This is complicated. Um, so uh, the book ends at sort of at this point. It gives this long list of names of all of the people who have intermarried and all of the people who have pledged to send away their wives and children. Full stop. The end of the book of Ezra. And you go, what? What is this? A very anticlimactic ending um, from what everything we've been swept up in this this big story, and then it kind of goes and just ends like this. So it, you know, and it feels jarring. I can sense it in the room. It feels jarring um, to read about this um, solution that they come up with. Um, you know, we know that that God's intention, as expressed in so much of scripture is that marriage is a, an unbreakable covenant. It's not something that you just throw away willy-nilly. Um, and so were Israel and the leaders right? You know, was their, was their solution wise or was it just? Um, you know, even in the text, there are, there are four uh, named leaders who, who disagree with Shekinah and his interpretation of the situation. So th it's, not like, it's not like a fiat. Like there's a bit of conversation that's going on around this. Um, so, like I said, in this whole series, in these books, it's all kind of ambiguous. Um, and I think that's the design. 
So we certainly wouldn't want to jump straight to an application. Oh, look, we have this in Ezra, therefore this should be done here. Because a lot of the time these texts are descriptive. They're describing historical things which happened rather than necessarily giving us a prescriptive do this from now on into eternity thing. We have to be careful with that, obviously, because we can, we can make Scripture say what we want it to say. But, um, but it appears that you know, in chapter 9... Um, that, you know, like I said, that, that seems like at the root of it, the problem that they thought was going on was this racial problem. Um, so that, you know, um, that the holy seed is being mixed. Um, and so we know that goes against Old Testament scripture and, and the New Testament itself. So even in the New Testament, in First Corinthians, Paul speaks about, um, you know, the issue of what happens when a believer is married to an unbeliever. And he explicitly rules out divorce. He says, no, you, that's not the way. Um, that's not the option. Instead, he encourages believers to live in such a way that they will win over their unbelieving partner. So we have in the New Testament this. Um, and that, that doesn't mean, on the other hand, going and choosing to get married to an unbelieving partner. You know, There's a general principle which is running through Scripture, which is like, this is probably not going to help you. Um, it's probably not wise um, to, to marry someone who's not of the faith. Um, but this general principle, yeah, Paul affirms it elsewhere. Like he says, don't be yoked to an unbeliever. So, so it's a bit of a both-and thing. That's what I mean by it. it's prescriptive and descriptive, or descriptive rather than prescriptive. So anyway, stepping back from all the minutiae, what are we... What are we to make of all of this? Uh, what are we to to make of the rather strange, depressing end to the book of Ezra? Well, let me try to answer that <laughs> from a slightly oblique angle. Um, in 2005, uh, I, when I was 19, I did a, um, what many privileged kids do, uh, I did an OE and I, I went over to fulfill a cliche and I went and found myself in London as a 19-year-old as a um, traveling around. And in London, I, um, I as a 19-year-old, really kicked myself about all the things I should have done and seen, but I, which I didn't. But one of the things I did do was I visited this, this sorry, I visited this. <laughs> <laughs> I visited this dog and I gave it a good old pat. Um, <coughs> I visited this art gallery here, um, which is called the Tate Modern Art Gallery, and it's located in this ginormous old um, power plant on the on the River Thames. Now, I don't know much about contemporary art, and I didn't. I knew much less about contemporary art back then. But I maybe it was cold. I don't know. I wandered into this big building, and um, and there was this art exhibition that was on, and for some reason, it's stuck with me ever since. Um, it was an exhibition by an artist called Rachel Whiteread, who's a sculptor. And she had won the Turner Prize, which is the big, big prize in, in the art world, um, about a decade earlier, for a sculpture called House, which was, as the name suggests, a, a, a sculpture of an actual house. So you can see her there. She's applying plaster to the side of the wall, and she covered that entire interior space with plaster, and then pulled it off and reassembled it so that we have the negative space of the that room. So a lot of her work is about containers. Um, it's about, um, yeah, 
encountering the presence of an empty void, if you like. So um, this room, like I say, she plasters it up and then she peels it off and we get at the end result, we get an image of, we get a physical embodiment of the absence of that space, if you like. Do you get what I mean? Um, maybe. So, so this, this is one that, she, this one she won the Turner Prize for. It was a, an actual house, a whole house that she plastered the entire house and then pulled it off and then switched it around and then they demolished the house and that was left, this kind of shell. Um, and it won a big award and it caused lots of controversy as, as art does. Um, and uh, it was demolished by a local council very quickly. I think it stood for 11 weeks before it got bulldozed. Um, anyway, <coughs> the show that I went to see was one called Embankment. This is in the tape. And as you can see from this image, or from that image, um, the work consists of just thousands of boxes, thousands of these little white boxes, about 14,000 of them. Um, and all of the boxes are casts from one particular box. So it's the inside, if you like, of a box. That's Then you take the cardboard off and you're left with the void of what would be in the box. And the story goes that, that when her mother died, um, she, the artist, was going through all of her stuff and um, all of her belongings to collect up the important things and um, to store in this cardboard box, which she then trunked around with her for years um, and it got ready and she was constantly retaping it up and it was falling apart in this cardboard box. And eventually she sort of realised that this box had some significance, some serious significance to her, so she made a cast of it, of the emptiness inside it. And the box came to represent the absence of her mother. Um, it also, um, like much of her work, it kind of came to represent the, the vaporous existence, you know, uh, of, of our lives in a way. Um, so anyway, it's been on my mind a bit, funnily enough, as I've been reading Ezra Nehemiah and, and letting it read me. This has taken me back to this, this exhibition of all these boxes. Um, there's something about the monumental scale of this exhibition, um, as well as the sort of deep absence that it represents, that seems fitting, I think, to the story and to the life of the returnees. So Ezra finds himself, just as Zerubbabel had before him, living in this epic story of, of God's miraculous work in history, bringing this tiny remnant of Israel back to the land, and yet at the very core of the story we see there's this absence, there's this something that's just missing, um, this void where life is supposed to be. So what lessons might we take away, I guess, at this point from the book of Ezra as we, as we come to a close? Um, well, we can look at Ezra himself, a pretty inspiring person. He sought God, you know, he prayed, he fasted. Um, he knew that, that God was the one who would achieve the purposes. Um, and I think there's something that we can, there's wisdom there, you know, just easy, low-hanging fruit <laughs> in the book of Ezra is that he, he models wise leadership. He also acted. Um, you know, he was faced with great ambiguity. Um, he was faced with a situation that he that didn't have a roadmap for explaining it. So he had to do some creative reading of Scripture and try his best to understand what to do in light of this complicated situation. And so he did his best, I think, reading through scripture and trying to understand 
what the way forward was. He consulted, he thought about his tradition, he, he consulted deeply, and then he acted decisively. Whether he got it right or not, I don't know. I mean, it, it's unclear. That's the point, I think. But we are also called, I think, to act in this way, to, to, to steep ourselves in our story, to steep ourselves in the tradition, to read scripture, to be immersed in scripture this way, so that we can creatively try to interpret the situations which are cropping up in front of us, um, and to do it together, you know. But the key thing is that ne neither Ezra nor Zerubbabel are the heroes of these stories. They're not protagonists, they're, they're agonists. God is the protagonist. God is the one who's the center of it all. So again, we, we should try to be careful not to immediately start adopting everything that these people do. Sometimes there's, it's God who's working through it. And ultimately, you know, Ezra was hoping for, and, and Zerubbabel and all these people were hoping for a community of, of righteousness. They were, they, were, they were motivated by a promise that God had given them. But um, they never lived to really see it come to fruition. We live on, we, however, we don't live in their world. We live on the other side of a decisive event, which is the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So he is the truly righteous one. He is the truly righteous one that we are being built up into. I just want to, as we come to a close, um, just bring our attention back to a letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. In this part in particular. So consider this um, in light of everything we've been thinking about through this, through these readings in Ezra. This is what Paul says to the Ephesians. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. So this could be writing to the Samaritans. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in the flesh the law and its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So the context of our calling is different to Ezra and Nehemiah's. Um, 
We're not called to build a temple, clearly, but we are called to be built into a temple, a living temple. And this work is not something that we achieve by our own smarts. It's not something we achieve by our own strategies. Um, it's, to quote Zechariah, not by our might or by power, but by God's spirit. So this is, uh, yeah, this is, this is a, a work of God in bringing us together. And I think if we have to think about just a final thing, just as a practice from here, um, what do we do in light of this? Well, um, we probably all have some kind of example of those boxes, you know, this, these voids in our life where we are trying to build something, where we're trying to construct something grand. Um, maybe it's God's calling us into something and it feels like we're doing this work of building something up. Um, and it's never quite enough. It's never, it's never quite good enough. There's always something missing. There's always something going wrong. I think the gospel is a message which says that Jesus is the one who fills those containers. You know, Jesus is the one who brings life to those things. All of our, all of our things that we try to define ourselves by, I'm not smart enough, I'm not rich enough, I'm not well-liked enough, all of those enough things are empty boxes that Jesus takes and fills with his, his life and his temple. So that's, I think, a little invitation on the back of this fascinating book. <laughs> so why don't we stand and um, let's, let's pray.